you watch an animal mature from egg to animal and go, whoa, that's a hell of an algorithm that generated that thing. You go back to the very beginning, like, what was the algorithm in that egg? The very rough version of my argument is if you step back and look at the history of life on Earth in time lapse, it actually looks more than you might think like the development of a single organism, as if we are building a planetary superorganism. I looked through your book, Why Buddhism is True, and I found it very interesting what you say about perception. When we perceive the world, we impose all these essences on things. Friend, enemy, good person, bad person. Meditation can erode some of these cognitive biases. And I think AI really crystallizes the challenge. What would you as, as an academic maybe recommend that, that these big superpowers do about AI? Um, well, first of all, I would say This is The Loaf Podcast. Welcome back to The Bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're sat down with Robert Wright, best-selling author specializing in evolutionary psychology, and he's the founder of multiple online forums for discussions such as bloggingheads.tv. He's the founder of the Non-Zero newsletter, which is on Substack. Robert or Bob, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Bob, it's great to have you here. Um, would you be able to maybe give us a little bit of an in-depth uh, description of yourself for our listeners and, and what you kind of specialize in? Uh, which aspect would you like me to focus on? I mean, I've written about a lot of different things, I guess. Um, I am, you know, by profession, I'm just a journalist. Uh, I have taught at the college level uh, here at Princeton and at Penn uh, by virtue of some of the books I've written, but I'm not actually a credentialed academic. Um, I have written about evolutionary psychology in a book called The Moral Animal, um, which goes way back uh, to the kind of when the term evolutionary psychology was just coming into circulation. Um, a book called Non-Zero about the history of the world and also of life. Um, a book called The Evolution of God, about the development of, in particular, the Abrahamic God, a book called Why Buddhism is True, which is uh, sounds uh, kind of more conceited or, or presumptuous than I like to think it is. Um, it, it focuses on, this, on the kind of the naturalistic or some would say secular part of Buddhism, and I defend uh, kind of the, the philosophical and psychological principles that that rests on. Um, my first book actually was called Three Scientists and Their Gods, and uh, that would take a while to explain. But the worldview in that, uh, I'm kind of getting back to in a book I'm writing now about uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and uh, I don't know what else. I, I mean, I've, I've written for a lot of places, uh, you know, uh, magazines, as we used to call them. Uh, and... Uh, and as you said, I now write uh, for, for my newsletter, Non-Zero Newsletters. There's a Non-Zero podcast, which is what uh, Blogging Heads has kind of evolved into. Uh, you mentioned Blogging Heads. I don't, what, what other, I don't know, that's, that's horoscope a, that's, sign, what do you want to know? No, that's a great, that's a great introduction. <laughs> but you, you mentioned one more thing we want to know. Basically, with a loaf podcast, so we, we see food, bread as, as really kind of the basics of, of our human uh -huh. condition, the essence. We're wondering what your favorite bread is as someone who promotes Buddhism. Well, when I was a kid, I used to like, uh, like to take Wonder Bread. Do you know what that is? 
It's like the whitest. It's like the, 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 the ad slogan was helps build strong bodies in 12 ways, but it's probably the least nutritious <laughs> bread you could conceive of. It was just white, 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 soft bread. And I would like, I would like roll it up into little ball, dense balls and put it in my mouth. And, uh, you know, honestly, I don't think I've ever enjoyed uh, any bread more than I enjoyed that. So I'm going to go with Wonder Bread. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to drop you in a word from our sponsor, Manscaped. You can use the discount code LOAF to get your discount because even a lion needs to tame its mane. Get the performance package 5.0 Ultra from Manscaped now. Stay fresh with no cuts so that your baguette leaves no crumbs. Very it's good. American, right? That's probably why we haven't heard of you it. You might say yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so with that important question out of the way, let's get on to something a little bit less serious, which is morality and evolution. So I do philosophy. Um, so I'm particularly interested in your, in your writings in The Moral Animal. So I wanted just for our listeners, before we get into a bit of discussion about the key points, could you just explain both the genesis and what you see as the nature of human morality as it relates to evolution. So why it comes about and what sorts of things are at the base of it that structure our morality. Um, well, I think that it's you can't really understand human morality and human moral impulses and intuitions without understanding the dynamics of human evolution um, one of the courses I actually taught here at Princeton was I co-taught a graduate seminar with Peter Singer. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him called yeah, the nature yeah. of ethics. It was about the biological basis of moral intuition. We were exploring that question. And um, I think that, you know, some some kind of theoretical developments in evolutionary biology that took place in the 60s and 70s some kind of theoretical refinements of the basic theory of natural selection, you might say, uh, many of which are, they're, they're kind of covered in Richard Dawkins's book, The Selfish Gene, although he didn't apply them to human beings much in that book. But I think uh, when you think about how those things do apply to the evolution of human psychology, you can understand our, our moral intuitions and for that matter, the whole human predicament a lot more clearly it's interesting you bring up peter singer actually and you said i'm sure you know him because we had him we hosted him in oxford for an episode and uh -huh. interestingly we actually got a little bit into evolutionary biology as it relates to morality because his argument for and i just wanted to see what, what you might think about this his argument for um universal or objective moral values was precisely that evolution can't account for what we call universal benevolence. So not just benevolence towards our tribe, people who look like us, think like us, or on our team, but sort of this seemingly universal moral idea, which comes about in all societies that we should promote good for people, happiness, fulfillment, etc., and not suffering. And that this idea of universal benevolence, having it for everyone, not being able to be explained by evolution might be something more like the recognition of an objective moral value. Yeah, he wrote a book called The Expanding Circle a long time ago mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, whereas I think he put it this way, uh, this was one of his examples, but there was a time when members of one ancient Greek city-state, well, they didn't call it ancient back then, of course, but when <laughs> one Greek city-state uh, would consider people in another Greek city-state subhuman, you know, enslave them, kill them. And then they had this moral epiphany and decided that all Greeks are humans. It's just the Persians who aren't humans. And, 
and uh, so on. In fact, supposedly uh, Aristotle counseled uh, Alexander the Great, whom he tutored as a child, uh, to uh, treat Greeks as though they were kin, but non-Greeks as though they were, quote, uh, plants or animals. That was in, uh, I think, Plutarch's uh, biography uh, of Alexander the Great. The, um, and then, the, and, and as Peter points out now, in the, in the modern world, we at least feel you should say that people of all races, creeds, and colors deserve to be treated decently and have basic rights. Of course, we sometimes honor that in the breach and don't really comply with it, but at least it's, it's something that is, that is said, uh, and, and that's an advance. And sometimes we do comply with it and try to comply with it. And so anyway, Peter, uh, it's funny, uh, Peter has one explanation for that expansion of the moral circle in that book, and I think there's some truth to that. And uh, I have a different and possibly complementary one in my book, uh, Non-Zero, uh, what I emphasize is that as human uh, social evolution has proceeded and cultural evolution kind of since hunter-gatherer days, um, mm-hmm. people have found themselves in non-zero-sum relationships with more and more people at greater and greater distances. And that, as a practical matter, when you're, when you're interdependent with someone, when you're playing a possible win-win game with them, whether because of economic exchange or you have some other common interest or maybe you're, you're uh, uniting with them against some common en- enemy. All those things encourage you to treat them decently. And I think that's part of the dynamic is the, the expansion of non-zero-sum dynamics that have kind of culminated in globalization. And if all goes well, we'll, we'll further culminate in the development of a true global community, which is, I think, urgently needed right now and hasn't really happened. Peter's explanation in the expanding circle is is more about our our kind of having an intuition that and I you know repeat this at at great peril because I'll probably get it wrong but 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 the idea is that evolution does uh give us a kind of a tit for tat instinct that you know good deeds should be punished bad deeds should be rewarded that um you you know you, you that that you you have to justify um the bad things you want to do to other people or the good things you want for yourself through some kind of argument uh about what is more generally deserved i i think he he as i recall says we do begin with that kind of core intuition, but we don't naturally ap- apply it, say, beyond the village or beyond the, the, the tribe or whatever. And that's what takes work. And he would stress the intellectual work, the, the sheer, you know, application of reason uh, to the basic core instinct. But but anyway, for whatever reason, this has happened. And, you know, I, I guess in general, the good news about human evolution is it left us with instincts and impulses that although designed to be used sometimes at the expense of others and in the service of our own, you know, genetic uh, proliferation, at least as that imperative was defined during evolution, um, that these these impulses and instincts we can build on uh, sometimes by just using reason um, to come closer to something that deserves the term moral truth. Yeah, that's that's it's interesting, and I suppose it's it is when we get to this level quite specific, and the specificities are 
complex, nuanced, and maybe it's a bit difficult to tell. I think even Peter acknowledged that to a certain extent, well, we can't really know for sure. We need certain evidence. And I was wondering maybe for a more general audience who might not be familiar with evolutionary psychology as it relates to morality, I was maybe wondering um, through your books and through your work throughout the last few years, what, what your really core beliefs are in relation to morality and how we can use evolutionary psychology to to learn something about the way we should live our lives or yeah, the kind of values that we have in, in modern society? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I guess to some extent, a utilitarian like Peter. Um, and that, that just means that, you know, roughly speaking, you think that the goal of a moral system and the goal of one's behavior that one is going to consider moral um should be to maximize the welfare of of humankind, uh, sometimes put as the greatest good for the greatest number or something. All these are rough approximations of the way it would be put precisely. But the, the basic idea is that, you know, it, it's, it, it's just, it, it seems to me like the easiest approach to morality to justify the idea. You know, we all pretty much agree that having a sense of well-being, being happy, these are good things. So uh, be nice to maximize them. And and then you add the assumption that no one person is special um, so that everyone's happiness counts equally in the moral calculus. And then you're, you're pretty much to utilitarianism. I think most other moral systems involve more in the way of assumptions, but I guess you could loosely say I adhere to a version of utilitarianism, not exactly like Peter's. Um, you know, I, I think uh, one thing I that, you know, is a core belief is that moral principles should apply equally to everyone. That's part of utilitarianism, not the only part. And it's part of a lot of moral systems. But I think one thing evolutionary psychology teaches is how hard that is to realize and how naturally biased we all are towards ourselves and our groups and how subtly the biases work. I think that is still not fully appreciated is how hard these biases are to, to root out. And and that's kind of a, a, a preoccupation of mine right now is trying to figure out a way to encourage us all to do more work on that front. Mm -hmm. So I want to, check with you before I advance the discussion that it's this kind of the view you still hold. But in an article on Joshua Green, you discard, you describe um, a thought experiment. Everyone's probably heard of the thought experiment, the trolley experiment, um, whereby there's a train or a tram or something headed on its way to kill five people. And if you pull the lever, then you'll be changing the course and thereby killing the one person who's on the other side. Um, and what you found, what, what was found in the experiment was that the people who chose to kill the one person, which on a utilitarian calculation is the right thing to do versus um, let the five people die. We're using the reason part of their brain more than perhaps the emotional. And you think that's a reason that we should be supporting utilitarianism. I just want to check that that's still the sort of view you hold. Well, you mean because it seems to be more a product of pure reason than some alternative moral intuitions? Um yeah, I guess that works in its favor. It, it, it's not mm-hmm. uh, the entire justification 
for it. Yeah, but I think, you know, when you see our emotions playing a big role in a moral decision, there's reason to be skeptical about the wisdom of the decision. Um, that's not always true. Not always true. But it, mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, I, 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 I yeah, I, th- I think uh, moral behavior should be subject to to rational inspection and and should pass the test. But you're right. That's a classic uh, utilitarian thought experiment. And, and a, a good example of how kind of quirky human intuition is, at least from a utilitarian's point of view, is is, uh, yeah, if you set the experiment up so that you pull the lever and divert the train from the one person it's going to uh, or from the, the five people it's going to kill to the one person. A lot of people say, yeah, you should do that. But if you say, OK, suppose the one person you wind up killing is actually uh, up on a platform above the track and the train is headed for the five people. And what you do is you push that person onto the track and that slows the train just enough so that it doesn't hit the people. Uh, you're still trading off five for one, but a lot of people say, no, 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 you, not that. You, you shouldn't do that. And that, that's just, you, you can kind of see why that would be given the way human moral intuition evolved. But it, it's, it's an example of the fact that we weren't designed to be uh, utilitarian philosophers by natural selection. Mm. I suppose the reason I ask is to take it one step further and to sort of ask, you know, given that you're utilitarian and what things should we ground our morality at base? Because obviously the rational part of the brain is being used more as you, as, as you cited in the study, when people are choosing to kill the one, this is in the case of the lever, but there's ultimately still a value at base, which drives that reason because it's calculating towards an end goal, which is to maximize pleasure. And at that point of choosing the value there, how do you do, do, do you think it's just a, an inbuilt of human psychology or, or, or how do you think we justify that value which sits at the bottom of the reasoning? Any moral system other than nihilism has to begin with the assertion of some value. This mm-hmm. is something that like Sam Harris didn't get in his he wrote this book, The Moral Landscape, kind of like not understanding why everybody didn't just automatically see why, you know, he said like science had proved that something like utilitarianism was right. I mean, that's just very naive. You have to, yeah. you know, he, he didn't pause to, uh, to acknowledge that you have to begin with a value. Utilitarianism begins with the value assertion that human happiness or well-being or whatever you, however you want to put it, is a moral good. And, and I'm just saying, I think th- that's assuming, and then you also assume nobody's special, all people are equally important. And, uh, and I'm just saying, I think that's the least you, you have to assume of all moral systems that I'm aware of, or, or it's, it's kind of the most plausible and simple set of assumptions. Yeah. Um, so the reason I think, and I agree with you. So, but I think then that creates a problem for the idea, which you don't, you know, fully assent to, but that you talk about in your article of utilitarianism being able to function as a kind of universal moral currency, because like you say, which is true, it has the least assumptions and it's perhaps at base from a neutral viewpoint, the most reasonable but in order for it, because there's that value at the base, I feel like there is a problem with it functioning as a universal currency, just because let's say you're Muslim, for example, and you have certain metaphysical beliefs, which would prevent you from having a utilitarian view on morality. How do you square that in creating what you call, for example, like the, the Esperanto of morality? Well, I was using that term mockingly in that review of Josh Green's book, uh, mm-hmm. and I really like Josh. Peter and I had Josh come talk to our class when we when we taught that that class uh, at Princeton, and uh, 
so he wrote a book called, what was it? Some, I think it had the tribe in the title. Or something. But anyway, I was arguing against his argument that the way to solve a lot of the conflict in the world was to get everyone on the same, using the same moral system, in particular utilitarianism. He was arguing that that would help. I'd be fine with doing that, you know, spreading, you know, uh, making utilitarianism universally subscribed to, but I don't think it's going to solve our problems. And, and, and that was my point. You know, Esperanto, mm-hmm. as a lot of people, I think, uh, no longer know, it's kind of a, a, a boomer thing, maybe, but it, it was an attempt to create a universal human language. There, the idea was that the source of conflict was that we all speak different languages. And if only there was just one language and, and somebody invented it and it was called Esperanto and their people actually learned it, then everything would be fine. And I was saying, Josh is kind of, you know, for him, utilitarianism is the moral equivalent of es- Esperanto. Mm-hmm. He thinks if only we were on the same page, our problems would be solved. And I'm like, no. And the reason is what I, I get back to is that, uh, you know, there are lots of cases where we all accept the same principle but we disagree about its application. And, you know, uh, Hamas and Israel are a good example. You know, they both would say a lot of the the same things, you know, like uh, you're not allowed, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't like start a fight. You shouldn't be the first to aggress. They just disagree about if you go back into history, who the initial aggressor was. And and there are a lot of things like that in, in life. I mean, I think most with most wars, there 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 isn't an explicit disagreement on moral principle. It's like, you know, Ukraine and Russia, uh, Russia has its set of grievances. It, it, it says, you know, NATO was threatening it. And we say, no, we didn't mean to threaten you. So it's a disagreement about the facts. And uh and, 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 you know, Russia says it was preemptive in the way your invasion of Iraq was. And we say, no, that's different. But we're not disagreeing that preemptive self-defense can be valid. So I, I, I think if we really want to solve the world's great conflicts, we need to get at those uh, biases that convince us that our group is in the right. It isn't a question of which moral system is being used. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I... I... I looked through your book, Why Buddhism is True, and I watched your video um, at Google about it, and I found it very interesting what you say about perception. So the concept of your, um, well, I wouldn't say maybe spiritual enlightenment, but a spiritual experience perhaps where you meditated and walked through the forest uh, perhaps and you saw a weed, and, and the weed which you might have once seen as invasive in your garden now you see as in this experience, after this meditation, after this mindfulness, you see as just another part of nature, just as a flower might be, just as beautiful and made up of the same atoms, so to speak, and there's no real difference in value. And I was wondering, is then perhaps, if it's not utilitarianism, is this maybe applying mindfulness meditation and and really trying to get this third third perspective on ourselves, perhaps, one way in which we can start to make a difference in the world? And 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 how would you perhaps apply meditation to to the current problems is, is it enough because um and uh, sorry for going off on a tangent here but a lot of people might 
might say that it's a bit naive to say, oh yeah, Israel, Hamas uh, conflict, all you've got to do is meditate. I'm wondering like how you, how you see this as, as maybe a pragmatic or practicable solution here. Yeah, well, I, cert- I certainly wouldn't say that at this point, all they have to do is meditate. Uh, you know, I do think that if more people uh, meditated in, in a certain, you know, in a certain tradition and tried to apply uh, the fruits of the meditation, there would be less conflict uh, in the world. Um, and maybe if, if both groups had been doing it all along, uh, uh, you know, intensively, maybe we wouldn't be where we are. Uh, but I, let me elaborate on that particular experience. So you're right that I'm walking through the forest. It's at my first meditation retreat. And I see this weed that it always I'd always thought of as an enemy. And I, I think, uh, well, you know, weed is really just an arbitrary designation. It's not inherently uglier than the other plants. Now, that sounds like a trivial observation. Obviously, it doesn't say weed in the DNA of the plant. Obviously, weed is a human designation. But that what what's interesting is how uh, deeply this infiltrates your perception. So it was really it's like you had to be there. You had to have the experience to understand how completely transformed your very perception of the weed is, because what I would call essence of weed had dropped out of it. Okay, Mm. and this is actually related to a Buddhist principle known as emptiness, the idea that which could be put as the idea that when we perceive the world, we impose all these essences on things and those show up in the form of very subtle feelings, you know, Uh, most dramatically like friend, enemy, good person, bad person, Um, you know, those uh, more than we realize, even with those obvious cases, I think. Those seeing people in one of those two categories gives you a kind of feeling that then shapes the way you think about those people. And this happens at much subtler levels. I, I, there's, there's an essence of my car, and it's different from the essence of other cars. It, it's a subtle feeling I get when I look at my car. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I do think, you know, I certainly haven't attained enlightenment in, in the Buddhist sense, but I've gone on enough retreats that I've – I've gotten closer to that than I am in my ordinary waking life. And yes, par- part of that would be looking at people. And you you do get a feeling for this. You can at a retreat uh, without uh, bringing to the perception all the baggage that's associated with the category you've you've put them in, which which fundamentally just just uh, corrupts your your thinking about them. Um, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would say, you know, look, meditation can erode some of these cognitive biases. It is, it is a real uphill struggle, uh, you know, in the sense that on day five of a meditation retreat, you may be in a very different place from where you normally are. And you may be like, you know, Gandhi level, whatever, um, but then you go back into the real world and it's kind of hard to, you know, it's going to be, in my experience, impossible to sustain that particular frame of mind. And hanging on to even some of it requires daily practice. So it's not for most of us a miracle cure. But at the same time, the, the value of a retreat for me is to is to give you real insight into how subtle and stubborn these biases are, to give you a sense for how transformed you would have to be to be completely free of them 
Um, and, you know, maybe to give you the determination uh, to work against them. But, like, I'm convinced that either humankind wakes up and really grapples with this problem, and it is getting more attention. The term cognitive bias is you never heard this 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it's good that yeah. people have at least heard the term. Um, uh, they still, I don't think, are necessarily focusing on the right biases or really grappling with with the biases, but it's progress. But in any event, I think if we don't if we don't make a lot more progress, you know, we're toast. And uh, and at least in the sense of uh, chaos, mass suffering. And I think AI really crystallizes the challenge. There is no way we are going to wisely usher ourselves into the next phase of technological evolution if we don't get over all the international conflicts and and a lot of the domestic conflicts. You know, you cannot wisely regulate AI uh, at the merely national level. There's going to have to be some degree of international coordination, at least normative coordination, at very, very minimum. Um, and 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 the U.S. right now is not in the kind of domestic. It doesn't have the kind of domestic cohesion you'd have to have to to do a good job at the level of national legislation. AI uh, is, at least in my opinion, Ollie might disagree with me. For me, something that we should be worried about. What would you, as as, a, as an academic, maybe recommend that that these big superpowers do about AI? Because obviously, no one can know for sure where it's going to go. You don't want China to take the lead necessarily. What what would you recommend? Um, well, first of all, I would say I think in a way too much emphasis is being put on the sci-fi super intelligence. You know, uh, sure. AI squash chooses to squash this all scenario. Sure. I, it's, I'm I'm agnostic. It's not impossible in the distant future, but I think they're much more near term threats. Uh, you know, j- just sheer destabilization. You know. You add the effect on the job market to the things that bad actors can do with it to the unforeseeable, in a way, consequences of people just uh, coming to rely on AIs for personal companionship, counseling, guidance. I mean, that'll in some cases, that'll be good. But as, as our experience with social media shows us, uh, you know, never assume that um, – algorithms uh, emanating from capitalism are going to be pure good. Uh, And uh, so I would say, first of all, if we could just slow things down a little, that would be great because it would give us more time to adjust, adapt, figure out what we need to do. And, and, you know, it's, as you alluded to, it's actually very hard to slow things down so long as you're worried about what's going on in China, like any arms race dynamic, whether among corporations, unregulated among corporations or between nations, is going to make it very hard uh, to certainly to legislate any kind of slowdown. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. One thing I think some people are uh, some reasonable people are saying is that. Okay, already some of the, you know, pretty advanced models have gone open source and that's okay for now. We're learning a lot. But if you look at the next generation, the kind of GPT-5 or whatever, um, we might want to think about making sure that those aren't open source, which would mean legislation saying that what Facebook has done is no longer legal 
And, and, but again, you got it. That has to be international legislation or you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get it done. It has to be, there has to be some degree of uh, international regulation. That sounds hopeless right now. But why does it sound hopeless? Because we're in a we're in a Cold War with China that didn't have to happen. You know, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not in our interest. It's not in China's interest. It just happened. You know what's happening in Russia, in Ukraine isn't good for Russia, isn't good for Ukraine. They're dying in extremely large numbers. You know, this is true of these conflicts generally. They're like not they're, they're not like someone winning a zero sum game. They're two parties losing a non zero sum game. That means it's, it's like not rational. We shouldn't be proud of it. And if 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 we don't uh, get better at heading these things off, uh, I, I don't think we can uh, handle the A.I. challenge. The last thing I say is at a minimum. You know, when you hear someone say, oh, we can't do this because that will stifle innovation in AI, that's not a good objection. Stifling innovation just may be a feature and not a bug, okay? Slower is probably better. Things are moving very fast, and I think people are starting to wake up to that. I think they're going to be a lot more awakened within a year or two. Just because we're using the concept quite a lot, and also because it links back to AI here in terms of constantly developing complexity and sophistication. Would you mind just quickly explaining for our listeners the concept of the non-zero-sum game and then how you apply that to deterministic progress and evolution with humans? Yeah, so, um, you know, a zero-sum game is one in which not, not just is there a winner or a loser, but like everything in the game is good for one player exactly to the extent that it's bad for the other. So if you're playing tennis... Every every the outcome of every exchange is good by one point for one side and bad by one point for the other. Now, if you're playing doubles tennis, your relationship to the person on your side of the net is entirely non-zero sum. Every point is either good for both of you or bad for both of you. That's a purely like non-zero sum game in real life. Um, you know, most relationships are combinations of non-zero-sum and zero-sum. You and a friend help each other out in certain contexts, but you have a crush on the same, you know, love interest or something. You may, or, or you want the same position on the basketball team or whatever. You have, there are elements of rivalry. That's zero-sum. Only one person is going to get that position on the basketball team. So, um, or, this, or, or with bargaining, like, uh, okay, if you buy a car, it means that you would rather have the car than the money you pay. The merchant would rather have the money than the car. That's not zero sum. But before you get the car, there's a bargaining phase where, you know, somewhere between the most you're willing to pay and the least the dealer is willing to accept, you know, between those two things, it's entirely zero sum, the bargaining. So anyway... Life is a combination of non-zero-sum and zero-sum. The argument um, in my book, Non-Zero, was that um, you can describe both biological evolution and human cultural evolution, by which I mean the evolution of everything that's not genes in a, in a way. I mean, uh, you know, music, religion, law, science, all information transmitted by humans that's, that's non-genetic. Um, both of these kinds of evolution, and of course, cultural evolution has entailed this growth in in the complexity of social structure, the depth and scope, and that's why we have a globalized society. Um, and I argue you you can you can analyze both uh, 
you know, if you ask uh, why did biological evolution create more and more complex organisms until you finally had one that was uh, smart enough to launch cultural evolution, and then why did cultural evolution have the kind of direction it had, you know, toward the growth of, of more complex social structure, um, you can really describe both of them as, uh, you know, kind of growth in the expanse of non-zero-sum relationships although driven often by zero-sum dynamics. And um, and I think more and more over time in evolution, the importance of kind of non-zero-sum uh, relationships has become recognized. And to get back to the very beginning of the conversation, you know, uh, one of the, I think, important lessons of evolutionary psychology is that... Um, we are designed, the human brain is designed to navigate a landscape of zero-sum and non-zero-sum relationships. That's what a hunter-gatherer society has. And, and that really accounts uh, for a lot of our psychology, including our moral psychology, our cognitive biases, the intuition that good deeds should be rewarded and bad deeds should be punished. Um, you know, and not, and that's not just an intuition of like vengeance. I want my vengeance. It, it's a more, it, it's a more refined sense that if you just hear about a case where somebody was assaulted and then you hear that the person who assaulted them was caught and punished, you, you kind of feel better because you have this intuition. That that's a good thing. So all of, all of these things, um, you know, I think you, you can only understand both the promise of human psychology and the great things about it and the downside of it by, by understanding that it, it was designed to play zero-sum and non-zero-sum games and that mm -hmm. the kind we play today are not the same kind we were playing when it was designed, like there weren't nuclear bombs then, for example. Mm. So correct me if I'm wrong before I move it onto AI, but essentially there's a favoring overall and a movement in the direction of almost or perhaps deterministically towards non-zero sum, uh, as in benefit for everyone, and therefore towards increasing complexity and sophistication on both sides. And that's what kind of leads to the intelligence and development of humans. Um, well, I mean, I would say, first of all, as far as cultural social evolution goes, the you know, the driver of the growth in social complexity the, in the depth and expanse of social complexity is that new technologies come along that either facilitate or otherwise encourage the playing of non-zero-sum games involving more and more people at greater distances. Um, although a lot of that is driven by zero-sum competition among groups, um, fund basically zero-sum competition, even though, strictly speaking, it rarely is purely that. Um, and that, you know, in evolution... Um, yeah, in a certain sense, yes. I mean, the, uh, the development of a complex organism is, is the, the development through evolution of an organism, uh, whose, you could, you could say whose various cells, uh, are playing a kind of non-zero sum game with one another to win-win, you know, outcome there. It's a classic case of like, they're all in the same vehicle, they will thrive together or perish together. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that. Cells die and so mm -hmm. on. And in a certain sense, strictly speaking, it's, it's more like the information embedded in the DNA uh, is, 
is <laughs> it's like the non-zero-sum game is kind of being played at that level. The, the, the ultimate winner is the pattern of information uh, in the DNA. But, it, but that is incarnated in – but the way, it, the way it wins is by orchestrating cooperative behavior among a whole bunch of cells containing it. Um, mm. I don't know. I, I, we're probably getting a little too – no, 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 no. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're not scientists, but the well, as in us, as in Lucas and I. But um, yeah, the reason, mine, but... <laughs> the reason I was going to link it back was to ask, you know, in in the vein of increasing complexity and sophistication, whether you think there's a sort of non-zero sum possibility with the future of AI, where there can be a positive symbiotic relationship for all almost people as it develops, or whether you think. With the current development, it's 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 more. You mean likely a relationship be... uh, between humankind and AI, or among people? Yeah, well, well, I, both, I, I don't say both. relationship to mean um, well, among people. You yeah. like with AI facilitating? I, yeah. I, I don't mean to suggest that there's like some sort but, of personal relationship between AI and humans, but well, but I think in a way that the the largest goal is to make sure that there's. I mean, if you if you take the sci-fi superintelligence doomer scenario seriously. The goal, it seems to me, I mean, some people who take that seriously just want to like bomb the chip factories and and stop the progress. And that seems to me like uh, beyond hopeless, um, actually stopping it. Uh, but I, I do think the goal, if that's a serious concern, uh, the way to hand, address it is to try to make sure that there remains a sim, symbiotic relationship between the AI and, and humankind. In other words, they always need us. And because uh, we're going to need them. I mean, we, we are becoming more reliant on AI. And I'm not even assuming that AI is sentient, has subjective experience, consciousness. I don't know. I'm agnostic on whether it will or does or whatever. But 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 just in terms of reconciling the continued proliferation of AI with the continued proliferation and well-being of humankind, you know, another way to say that is we want to play a, a non-zero-sum game with the AI to a win-win outcome. We want there to be a symbiotic relationship and not a fundamentally, well, strictly speaking, I think you'd call it a mutualistic relationship, but not a, a parasitic relationship where it just exploits us or, like, wipes us out. So right. the, now, that, but, but sure, this, certainly a non-zero-sum win-win relationship among human beings should, should be part of that as well. Yeah, sure. And and forgive my my relative ignorance on on the matter of evolution. I think maybe a lot of the listeners too won't really know. But as far as I understand, evolution takes many, many, many hundreds, thousands of years to take effect. But and this is a bit of a sci-fi scenario that I'm taking it to. If if AI were to get kind of complex enough and um, developed enough to almost resemble humans, and humans could start forming relationships with AI, a la Blade Runner, her, that kind of thing. Could that potentially affect human evolution in, in a very kind of sci-fi-ish way, wherein in 1,000, 2,000 years, we could see humans and robots becoming slightly more symbiotic, very almost physically and structurally? Well, I think, uh, you know, technological evolution is moving so much faster than old-fashioned biological evolution that I wouldn't expect a lot on that front. But, of course, uh, one thing people think AI may do is accelerate 
progress in biotechnology, including genetic engineering. So you could find people choose, you know, uh, choosing to alter their genetic makeup, uh, possibly in ways that make it more, that make them more content with living in a metaverse and having these like virtual reality relationships with a bunch of beings that aren't actually real or a combination of beings that are, that aren't real. And, and the avatars of friends of theirs. I, I, I don't know. Oh, so, sorry. Sorry. To I, jump I, know. In I mean, with, honestly, what's, no, I was just going to say yeah. Peter Singer, when we, when I spoke to him and when Ollie and I spoke to him, he said it would be if possible, probably more preferable if everyone was in a, matrix for example where it would be a very hypothetical matrix where everyone has the maximum happiness within that matrix and there's the least amount of suffering so from that side i'm not sure if you would agree or disagree well i mean i guess in principle i think everyone should have the opportunity to uh experience whatever forms of of joy and pleasure there are um you know i i i take i i do i take the metaverse thing Seriously, I mean, I, I, I think you know Zuckerberg. He he got kind of mocked for renaming his his company Meta, but I, I just think he kind of uh, took the wrong approach and was maybe a few years early. But uh, I, you know, if you if you buy the idea that there aren't going to be many jobs for actual human beings to do, and I don't know whether that's the case, but you can't rule it out. And ask, well, how are people going to um, spend their time? Um, you know, it's possible that, that, that virtual, uh, you know, virtual forms of experience will become, uh, so compelling that that'll be a, a common choice. I mean, I've always thought that the path to the matrix, um, is, uh, and by the way, little known trivia fact is that they gave Keanu Reeves three books to read for that role. One of them was the moral animal. I'm not convinced he read it, but God bless the directors for at least trying to get him to uh, to read it. Wow. Um, the uh, the um, the uh, and also Kevin Kelly's book, um, I think it was out of control, uh, mm. and then some French philosopher. Uh, but but uh, the uh, exactly yes. Um, well, I think did he write whatever simulacrum and similar whatever? Exactly, whatever exactly. That's, that's yeah, that was uh, that wasn't that wasn't Baudelaire, the, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, right, right. No, not Baudelaire. No, it was a contemporary. It was a French philosopher who then complained, uh, you know, ab about their use of it, and it's like they showed it on the bookshelf. I'm like, dude, do you not understand effective promotion? It's like just, just like <laughs> you know, they're, they're they're doing you a huge favor, but he he complained anyway. Um, the, uh, um, I've always thought that the, the, the path to the matrix leads through Wally, -E, you might say, if you know that movie, it's a movie about self-indulgence in the world of the future. Um, you know, but I think if it does, if we do wind up, and this is decades from now, of course, if not centuries, but if we do wind up in a world fundamentally run by machines and people are spending their time in a dream world, They'll probably have gone there voluntarily, you know, like via via video games that are increasingly realistic. Mm. I just want to throw it back to um, your discussion about evolution and, and kind of the deterministic aspect of it, because there's something I wasn't entirely clear on. And I read um, a little review from Steven Pinker on your book, uh, Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny. And in your book, you basically argue that 
effectively, because of non-zero sum relationships, we are slowly moving towards increasing um, complexity, sophistication, processing information, which we've already said. But the criticism from Steven Pinker is that ultimately the, the, the function of evolution is for genes to be reproduced and the worthy environment not structured in such a way that intelligence were to increase this likelihood of carrying on with offspring then intelligence wouldn't have arisen. And so there's not this deterministic relationship. I don't know what, how you would respond to that. Well, I mean, you know, I've talked to Peter. I, I'm not sure what he's trying to say there. He, there's certainly nothing you've said that I disagree with about why intelligence evolved. There's at the end of the book, I, I think his big sticking point at the end of the book, I argue that it's, uh, conceivable that natural selection serves an overarching purpose. I mean, so some ways that could happen is like, A, there could be a God that set it in motion. B, we could be living in a simulation and it's just this algorithm that somebody invented. C, you know, extraterrestrials could have planted the seed of life with the idea that evolution would happen. But the main point is that none of those scenarios involve anything spooky or weird. I'm, I'm, I'm just talking about straightforward Darwinian material evolution. And I think for a while, Steve didn't understand that. And he used to get kind of triggered. He, he, Steve, as I've told him to his face, gets basically triggered by a d discussion of that particular philosophical issue. The, the possibility that there is some kind of larger um, uh, purpose to which uh, natural selection is subordinate. Um, that's, the only, that's the only fundamental critique of his of non-zero that, uh, that I recall. Um, and I can imagine him uh, pointing out that we have a straightforward Darwinian explanation of the evolution of intelligence uh, and thinking that that's a refutation of the purpose hypothesis, but it's not. It's a, it's a common thing to say in response to it, but with all due respect to everyone who says it, it just shows they don't understand what I'm saying, which may be my fault. But mm -hmm. it is it is, of course, of course, evolution is a physical material process that happened through Darwinian mechanisms. I'm not saying mm -hmm. anything beyond that. I'm just saying that could, you know, there are physical processes that serve larger purposes, just the way when we design a computer program. It's actually a purely physical process involving electrons uh, that, that signify information. Um, but it has a purpose. You know, we set it up and it unfolds and has a purpose. Yeah, I suppose just to make myself clear in case we're misunderstanding each other, I think I might have put it slightly wrong. The, po the point being is that in the book, you argue sort of that there's an in not inevitability, but let's use that word for the moment, an, an inevitability towards um, the development of greater sophistication and intelligence. And yeah. my argument purely was that if the environment didn't support greater intelligence, say, for example, in the ocean where evolution has never led that way, or well, it, it, it has. Well, actually, whatever, there's some but, pretty but the, smart oceanic animals yeah <laughs> but yeah no but but the point is if the if the environment weren't to support those then it wouldn't come about and sure. that's a critique of the idea of the inevitability of intelligence is, is sort well, of I my never, point I rather never, than never, as it relates to yeah i mm. never i never used the word inevitable i said i did think that given enough time intelligence of a human level was likely to evolve that doesn't mean it was going to be in animals that looked exactly mm. like us it's certainly not deterministic yeah. at that level which is something that um Stephen Jay Gould used to not understand when he critiqued these kinds of arguments. But uh, but all I've said is I think it's highly likely. That's a contentious issue. 
There are great evolutionary biologists like the late William Hamilton who agree with me on that. And there are great evolutionary uh, biologists like the late John Maynard Smith who disagree. But it's not a crazy thing to look at the evidence and say, I think, uh, given uh, as long as life could could uh, persist on this planet, the eventual level uh, uh, evolution of human level intelligence and therefore the launching of, of a kind of cultural evolution was very likely. It's not a crazy claim. And as you can imagine, that that is relevant to the purpose argument. If, if it if it wasn't at all likely, if it was just a total fluke, that weakens the argument that there's a purpose unfolding. Of, of course, I mean, intelligence, you might maybe agree, is could manifest itself in different ways. Or do you necessarily think of it in, in let's say, the lens of human intelligence? Because, for example, couldn't the environment have let us evolve in that, for example, our sensory kinds of intelligence or sensory um just abilities were far more heightened, for example, rather than our, our brain intelligence? Well, I think the key thing is that it has to be an intelligence that starts creating technologies that then increasingly kind of assume the adaptive burden, so to speak, okay, and, and, and serve the interests of the organism. And so, I mean, for purposes of the argument about, you know, was this planet likely to get to the point we seem to be at of kind of a a global technological infrastructure, um, the key question is, would you get the kind of intelligence that launches technological evolution? Mm. Uh, and, and I think that, I think that kind of intelligence was fairly likely. It's a very conjectural thing to say that. I mean, it's, it's, mm. uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to wrap your mind around the probabilities. I just want to, yeah, I just want to return to the, uh, not design, but the purpose, because I know you don't assent to, to design theory, but the kind of purpose right. argument, you suggested possibilities of purpose. So for example, simulation or extraterrestrials. But I wanted to ask at this point, because I think you have sh maybe shifted about a bit on over the years. At this point, would you assent to the fact that there is likely a purpose in evolution? And if so, how would you go about justifying that? Well, uh, it's a, it's a slightly long argument, but, um, the, uh, you know, if you if you Google higher purpose, my name, New York Times, evolution, you'll get to an article where I talk about it. And that links at the bottom to a larger argument I've made about it. What I would say uh, that's on the meaning of life TV URL, I think, but uh, but isn't accessible through that in an obvious way. What I what I would say now, the very rough version of the argument is, you know, in Richard Dawkins's book, The Blind Watchmaker. He kind of, you know, uh, the title of the book comes from this theologian of, I think, the 18th century who argued that God must have created animals because they were kind of obviously the products of design. He said, if you're walking through a field and you see a rock, well, that's not that's just a rock. It's not obviously product of design. You see a you see a watch, a pocket watch and pick it up. Well, that's obviously has a purpose. Right. I mean intricately interconnected stuff. And, and what Dawkins says correctly is that he wasn't wrong. Paley, this theologian, wasn't wrong to distinguish between these two kinds of things and say, yeah, you can look at one and say that must have a special kind of explanation. And Paley wasn't wrong to say animals and plants are in that category. They do demand a special kind of explanation because, you know, they do seem to have, in some sense, 
uh, a purpose. They seem designed to do something. They mature toward this kind of uh, state of being this coherent, complex, interconnected thing. Uh, what Paley got wrong was the, was the designer. It wasn't a, a God that designed them hands-on. It was natural selection. And, and Dawkins is, uh, he's, he's, he's right about all that. We now know the purpose uh, is just to get genes into the next generation, by the way, but they do have a purpose. And, um, and what the r- very rough version of my argument is, if, you know, if Dawkins is conceding, as he kind of is, that you watch an animal mature from egg to animal and, and go, whoa, that's a hell of an algorithm that generated that thing. You go back to the very beginning, like, what was the algorithm in that egg that generated that? That, that algorithm would seem to, in some sense, be the product of design. Even if we want to put design in quotes and it's a metaphor and natural selection is a designer still, you know, Darwinian philosophers like Dan Dennett are comfortable saying, yeah, you can speak of natural selections, designing things, of organisms as having purposes. Okay, so fine. The very rough version of my argument is if you step back and look at the history of life on Earth in time lapse, you what you and and you see like, okay, life gets more and more complex, ecosystem uh, develops, is several levels of organization are reached, the cell, the complex cell, the multi-celled organisms, societies of multi-celled organisms. And then one of these organisms launches a process that leads to this like giant global brain we're building. If you step back and look at that in time lapse, it actually looks more than you might think like the development of a single organism, as if we are building a superorganism, a planetary superorganism. This is a very rough, crude version of the argument, is that if Dawkins is conceding that uh, certain kinds of objects and processes and processes of development suggest that we need a special explanation, not for how they developed, okay? Because again, Darwinian evolution is the mechanism, okay? I'm not, it's not about that. It, 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 it's about how did the algorithm that gave birth to them develop? And in this case, that would mean that would mean seeing the first self-replicating material on the planet as, in effect, an algorithm uh, for the creation of a giant global brain. Taking that seriously, okay? That is very roughly speaking the argument. It's easy to hear that version of it and dismiss it. I contend that if you keep asking uh, critical questions, uh, more about it, more of them have satisfactory answers than you might imagine. But I haven't really developed this into some kind of like book-length argument. The, the closest comes via via the link in that New York Times piece. Yeah, I, it's just funny. The, the whole global brain, one whole organism idea, just very evocative in my mind, at least, of the end of 2001 Space Odyssey, huge kind of baby going back to the beginning after all that progress. But um, I do want to say that we, yeah. are reaching, we are reaching time here. And uh, we wanted to firstly thank you for your time. And as, as a kind of closer, basing, linking this back to AI, geopolitics, evolution even, what do you see maybe as the best case scenario and the worst case scenario for the, for the future? Well, I guess com- complete extinction of our species is pretty unlikely because most of the catastrophic scenarios uh, don't wipe out quite every li- living, breathing human being and maybe civilization would restore itself and conduct itself more wisely next time around. I'd rather skip that stage and just get to the wisdom. 
Um, but uh, I certainly can imagine a lot of ways catastrophic things happen. In fact, uh, on the current course, I'd say that, you know, that seems sadly uh, pretty likely. Some, something uh, of a magnitude, a, a catastrophe on this, this, the scale that certainly at a minimum that people of my generation have never seen. You know, I was, you know, anyone born after World War II has never seen. Um, and maybe worse, maybe, you know, quite possibly worse than that. Uh, there's just a lot of things where, uh, of kinds of threats we're, we're not taking seriously, none of which can be addressed uh, in, you know, if we don't get kind of the psychology of tribalism, uh, so to speak, um, under control, which is something that, uh, you know, evolution has left us with as our as a legacy that we have to grapple with. And I apologize to people who take the who are offended by the term tribalism. Uh, call it groupism. Well, thank you. I think that's a brilliant note to end on. So we're going to wrap up the podcast for today. Listeners, if you're interested by what Bob had to say, please check out his newsletter on non-zero. It's available on Substack. And Bob, we'd just like to thank you again for the discussion. And that is the Loaf Podcast out.